Welcome to Story and Star Wars. I'm Alistair Stevens. This week, we turn our attention to the last movie in the prequel trilogy and the last Star Wars film, for now, Revenge of the Sith. Before we get into our analysis of this remarkable film, a couple of quick follow-ups from last week's lecture, the second of which will lead very nicely, I think, into our study of Anakin's tragic fall to the dark side of the Force. Sam got in touch after the lecture last week to tell me about his enduring affection for Attack of the Clones. It was a great email, and it encourages me to highlight something that I haven't talked about a lot here on the Story in Star Wars series. We've been very lucky with the attention that this podcast has received over the course of the last few weeks, and I know a lot of listeners aren't necessarily familiar with the other podcasts we do, the other work that we do, over at storywonk.com, though... If you're interested in pop culture or in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, in Outlander and Veronica Mars, you should definitely check those shows out too. But those podcasts come from an understanding of and appreciation for stories in all their myriad forms. That is what brought my wife and I together. That's why we started Storywonk in the first place. If you're interested in stories and storytelling as we are, then one of the first skills you have to learn is the ability to differentiate between this is a good story and I like this story. Those are different thoughts. It is possible to be moved by, to be engaged by, to enjoy a story that isn't perfectly well constructed. That's a real and legitimate enjoyment, and it doesn't speak to a lack of taste or of understanding. Sometimes stories will just speak to you specifically, despite their imperfections. It's also the case that you may not necessarily like stories which you concede are well-constructed. If you don't like The Lord of the Rings, for example, that doesn't necessarily mean that The Lord of the Rings is bad, just that it doesn't speak to you. It is also possible, of course, for you to make the argument that The Lord of the Rings is bad. I don't know why you would, but you could. But your immediate emotional response should have nothing to do with your critical analysis of the text. And that's an important distinction, because, while this is the internet, and we're accustomed now to a style of discourse that purposefully conflates a positive emotional response to a text with quality, and vice versa. In the course of these lectures, I'm offering my perspective on the Star Wars movies, and also sharing my personal response to them as stories, as well as representing, oftentimes for the sake of argument, what I take to be the common consensus on these movies. I'm not talking extensively or critically about the cinematography or the music or the digital effects because I'm not qualified to talk critically about those things. All I have to offer on those subjects is my own personal response. When it comes to narrative craft, I will talk critically because that's my area of expertise, but I welcome different perspectives and different points of view. If you tell me that Attack of the Clones is a better piece of narrative craft than The Empire Strikes Back, we're going to have a conversation about what you take to be the strengths and the weaknesses of both stories. I can't wait to hear that position. But if you tell me that you love Attack of the Clones, even that you love Attack of the Clones more than you love Empire, that's not a position I will challenge. That's not a position you can be argued out of. It's a legitimate and awesome response, and a response that is inherently valid and worthy of respect. Love what you love, and don't feel challenged in that. You don't need to justify or explain it. Love stories that you know aren't good. Don't love stories that you know are good. It's up to you. All of which is to say, Sam, thank you so much for getting in touch, and don't ever feel bad about loving Attack of the Clones. It's a movie that speaks to you, and that is awesome. 
The other piece of follow-up from last week comes to us from Charles, who writes, I read that although it isn't expressly stated in the film, the Tusken Raiders who kidnapped Shmi Skywalker are paid to do so by Count Dooku on the orders of Darth Sidious. If that's true, it's a serious bit of storytelling that is taking place outside the text. How is the audience supposed to figure that out? This, I must admit, wasn't a detail that I'd heard before, so I went looking for more information, and it seems that there was, indeed, a cut line of dialogue in an early version of the script that, as Charles said, attributed responsibility for Shmi's death to Dooku. That is an interesting and a controversial thought, and it's one that demands further investigation, even though, to be completely clear here and now, this isn't a canonical detail. There are only two possibilities when it comes to poor Shmi Skywalker. The first is that she's taken by chance by the Tusken Raiders. She's tortured and beaten for unknown reasons, and she ultimately dies in the arms of her son by coincidence. The second is that she's taken by the Tusken Raiders on the orders of, or I guess in exchange for money, goods, supplies, services from Palpatine or Dooku. That would better account for the physical state in which Anakin finds Shmi. We don't have a lot of additional information on the Tusken Raiders, so we can't say for sure what motivated them to beat and abuse her, or how common that is in their treatment of prisoners. Though Klieg Lars, our only direct source on this topic, says first that Shmi is his wife, using the present tense, then that there's almost no hope she survived being their prisoner for a month, and then urges Anakin to accept the fact that she's dead and move on. And he does that in a single scene, which indicates, if nothing else, impressive and rapid progress through the stages of grief. So, certainly, it's possible to account for this odd beat in the story, a beat of which I was critical last week, by seeing it not as a random event, but as part of a plan to break Anakin and drive him to the dark side. From a narrative perspective, that's actually a strong addition. We're not reliant, then, on coincidence to make our story work. It tightens up our conflict. It makes the most inessential part of the story a necessary part of Anakin's fall, because it isn't just something that happened, it was something that was done to him. I talked in the Clones Lecture last week about the fact that the Tatooine sequence doesn't give us, from our privileged position with regard to the narrative, any new information. We already know that Anakin becomes Vader, that he falls to the dark side, that he becomes the monster. So there's no tension associated with that and his murder of the Tusken Raiders. But if it's all part of Palpatine's scheme, if the Tusken Raiders are ordered to capture Shmi and to torture her until Anakin shows up, though we never address how long it would take to travel from Naboo to Tatooine, and, critically, if that detail were acknowledged in the text of the movie, then we would have an insight into a deeper level of conspiracy here. Anakin doesn't just fall. He is dragged down. This isn't misfortune. This is conspiracy. And that, ultimately, is the problem with this idea. We're going to talk about Anakin's fall, of course, in the context of Revenge of the Sith, but we have to question how the text encourages us to see his eventual fate. If Palpatine orchestrated this plan, if he ordered, even by proxy, Shmi's death at the hands of the Tusken Raiders, then it necessarily changes how we see Anakin. He becomes less the tragic hero, and more a victim. The tragic figure in literature is the character who is kept apart from heroism by virtue of a single flaw, his hamartia. If Anakin's fall is a tragic one, 
then what is his hamartia? What is the vice or the virtue in excess that leaves him burned and broken on the banks of the lava flow on Mustafar? We will return to that and connect the question of Shmi's death to the final fall of Anakin Skywalker at the end of today's lecture. Revenge of the Sith, then, was released in May of 2005. Its budget was $113 million, a little less than the previous two films, and it eventually brought in box office receipts of $848 million, almost exactly halfway between The Phantom Menace and Attack of the Clones. It was generally heralded by critics as the best of the prequel movies, though some went even further than that and rated it higher than Empire, and in a few cases, even higher than A New Hope. Here's the thing about Revenge of the Sith. It isn't a great movie. It is baggy, it is ill-disciplined, it is self-indulgent, and it has a recurring habit of throwing out evocative ideas and doing nothing at all with them. That isn't all that it is, stay tuned, but more than any of the previous movies, there's a striking lack of focus through the first half of the story, as well as numerous concessions to this story's position in the Star Wars saga as a whole. We'll break down the structure of the first half quickly, but I want it to begin with the opening crawl. In many ways, it's an evolution of what we expect from the crawl with the explosive WAR! exclamation point at the beginning, to the introduction of Grievous, the abduction of Palpatine, and the rescue effort. What really stood out to me, though, was the first graph. The Republic is crumbling under attacks by the ruthless Sith Lord Count Dooku. There are heroes on both sides. Evil is everywhere. As we've mentioned before, Star Wars has never been the simple conflict between good and evil that it's often presented as in the popular culture. Our heroes have always been more complicated than that, and the thematic thrust of the text has relied less on the innate goodness of the rebels and the Jedi than on the choices our heroes have made. But the line, there are heroes on both sides, is undeniably striking. It's often said that it foreshadows Anakin's fall to the dark side, and that's too compelling an argument to completely dismiss, but I'd urge you to look perhaps a little more closely. Heroes on both sides of what? The Republic, we're told, is being attacked by Dooku's forces. So this isn't the conflict between the light side and the dark side, despite the reference to the Sith Lord, Count Dooku. It's about the Republic and the Separatist faction. Anakin is going to turn to the dark side, certainly, but he absolutely isn't going to side with the Separatists, so it doesn't, in that sense, foreshadow his eventual fate. Rather, it seems to be saying something deceptively subtle about the nature of this war, and perhaps war in general. Struggling under the tyrannical yoke of a remote rule, a ragtag handful of systems rise up in rebellion, seeking self-determination and control over their own destiny. We can't overlook, surely, the implicit connection between the Separatists and the Rebel Alliance. It is possible that this war looks very different from the other side of the trenches. Are there, in that sense, heroes on both sides? Well, let's not go too far. <laughs> the other side of this war, after all, is the side of Newt Gunray and the Trade Federation, so the war itself was orchestrated as a power play by the Supreme Chancellor and soon-to-be Emperor, and we're carefully given no insight at all into the day-to-day -day goals of the Separatists. The most we see are the massed ranks of the droid army. So we can concede the possibility there are soldiers fighting for freedom from the rule of the Republic who are heroes fighting for a just cause, but we can't say for sure the text doesn't give us enough information. Rather, 
I think this line speaks to a very quiet piece of philosophy, hidden away at the heart of Star Wars. When great deeds are done, and great forces clash, there are always consequences. Owen and Beru paid for their proximity to heroism, to great events, as did the residents of Cloud City. The Ewoks were confronted with death and devastation, even without the often predicted ecological disaster that would befall the forest moon of Endor after the destruction of the second Death Star. The people of Naboo, both human and Gungan, suffered. Padme's handmaidens suffered and died. The Geonosians, the clones, standing too close to heroism. Heroism here, in the sense of exceptionalism, perhaps, is likely to get you hurt, particularly if your name is Padme Amidala. So it is possible, then, that by recognizing the existence of heroes and danger on both sides, we're recognizing that ancient curse. May you live in interesting times. So, into the movie proper. Three years have passed since Attack of the Clones. In the skies over Coruscant, the Separatist fleet is engaging the Grand Army of the Republic, and Obi-Wan and Anakin are trying to board General Grievous' ship to rescue Chancellor Palpatine. The opening battle sequence is genuinely amazing, and maybe the most successful grand-scale action set piece in the entire series. Obi-Wan and Anakin work together, demonstrate their skills, finally board the ship. With the help of R2, they make their way to Palpatine and confront Dooku, working together. They beat him back, but after Dooku traps Obi-Wan, it takes Anakin's rage to defeat him. He severs Dooku's arms, hesitates, but urged on by Palpatine, finally beheads his enemy. This isn't the first time that Anakin has touched the dark side, and it won't be the last. And so far, so good. The first 15 minutes gives us a really rewarding story, takes us all the way to Dooku's death. I'm particularly impressed by the mirroring of Obi-Wan and Anakin working together so well outside of the ship, and so poorly inside the ship. There isn't much in the way of a wasted moment. From here, though, we have the extended escape, the capture sequence, the confrontation with Grievous, then the crash onto the planet, and this 15 minutes in is where the movie starts to really lose its way. We've already brought this arc, this introductory story, to its climax with the death of Dooku and the rescue of Palpatine and another step from Anakin toward the dark side of the Force. The diversion with Grievous doesn't add anything. We just face down Darth Tyrannus, and Grievous just doesn't compare, a problem that will continue through the rest of the story. From there, we get bogged down in detail. Grievous flees to Utapau. We get some posturing between Mace Windu and Palpatine. Anakin is reunited with the pregnant Padme. And uh, it pains me to say this, but the awesome Padme of Attack of the Clones is completely absent from this film. From there, we spend the next half hour mired in the movement of the plot. Anakin is appointed to the council, but refused the rank of master. He dreams of Padme, visits with Palpatine at the opera, talks with Obi-Wan. Yoda goes off to Kashyyyk to fight with the Wookiees, only because we can't have Yoda in the middle third of the film on Coruscant. Similarly, Obi-Wan goes off to Utapau to battle Grievous and ride around on the Varictil. Both of those storylines are simultaneously irrelevant to the plot, and completely necessary because of the constraints imposed upon us by the existence of the original trilogy. And in Revenge of the Sith, more than in any of the other prequel movies, we are seeing the tension between the story we are here to tell and the concessions and mechanisms by which this story is forced into its spot in the broader story of Star Wars. 
you could have cut the Kashyyyk and Utapaz stories from this movie in their entirety without touching the core narrative conflict in the slightest. In fact, go all the way and cut Grievous from the opening, since we don't need a secondary antagonist to keep Obi-Wan distracted on Utapau. The entire movement, from the crash landing on the planet, 25 minutes in, and the arrival of Mace Windu and the other Jedi in Palpatine's office, one hour and 11 minutes in, is repetitive, muddied, unnecessary, or, at best, inessential. But then, Windu faces Palpatine, Anakin intervenes, Darth Sidious is revealed, and thus we reach the midpoint, the middle of the second act, the fulcrum around which the movie turns, and while I wouldn't want to say definitively that this is the greatest midpoint in modern cinematic history, I would be willing to have that discussion. This is the reason that Revenge of the Sith has the reputation it does. This is the reason it is as undeniably powerful as it is. After spending the first half of the movie flitting from scene to scene without much cohesion, deliberately pulling apart the threads of our story to account for details that will be necessary in the back half, here we finally draw everything together. The midpoint unifies our stories, it tightens the focus, and it provides a narrative force to the rest of the story that doesn't really let up until we cut to credits. The performances are elevated, the action is unified, the pace builds and builds and builds. In terms of halves of Star Wars movies, I would say that the back half of Revenge of the Sith rivals the back half of A New Hope, everything from rescuing Leia to destroying the Death Star, and the back half of Empire, everything from Han and Leia's arrival on Bespin to their final escape. It is an undeniably accomplished piece of work. And the first moment in the prequel trilogy where Lucas's strengths as a writer and director aren't encumbered and overshadowed by his weaknesses. Now, with no more world-building to give, with no more need of constraint, he can launch into full-on opera. And that's exactly what we get. So Vader goes to the Jedi Temple and unleashes true evil. We cut to Obi-Wan on Utapau and the scene where Cody returns his lightsaber, receives Order 66, and immediately turns on the Jedi. The montage that follows of clones all over the galaxy turning on their Jedi generals is one of the most moving sequences in the entire series, and it culminates in one of the few scenes in Star Wars which I find genuinely difficult to watch. The younglings looking up at Anakin with trust as he ignites his lightsaber. From there, our stories remain entwined and the tone remains unremittingly bleak as we move toward Mustafar. Padme arrives and tries to talk Anakin down, which is a scene that doesn't work for me for a number of reasons, but we finally cross the Rubicon and lock the conflict for the third act when Anakin force chokes her. Obi-Wan battles Anakin as Yoda on Coruscant faces off against the Emperor. The latter feels a little like housekeeping. We have to have the showdown and the Emperor has to believe that Yoda is dead, so let's get through that. But the battle on Mustafar is every bit as desperate as apocalyptic, and as final as it should be. Obi-Wan's heartbreak is just beautifully delivered, and I would argue that Ewan McGregor has never been better in the series, perhaps never more simply or more sincerely than when he tells Anakin that he has failed him. Even the often-mocked, I have the high ground line works for me, a desperate ploy to give Anakin an excuse to stop fighting, to end this before the inevitable conclusion 
that Obi-Wan knows is coming. Desperation is our watchword throughout that duel. And ultimately, the ending that we knew was coming arrives. Anakin falls, defeated, lost to the dark side, and we cut from his medical reconstruction to the birth of Padme's children, Luke and Leia. And it's possible that in my enthusiasm for the back half of this movie, I might have suggested, might have left open the implication that there aren't any major flaws to be found in the conclusion of this story. And that, as I'm sure you know all too well, isn't true. Padme's death is perhaps the most egregious example of wasted opportunity that we've seen in Star Wars. It's even delivered with a shrug, as the medical droid simply says she lost the will to live. That isn't the dedicated, principled Padme that we saw in The Phantom Menace, or the heroic Padme that we saw in Attack of the Clones. This is nothing more than the resolution of a reactive, sidelined character we've seen throughout Revenge of the Sith. And no amount of doom-laden intercutting with the birth of Vader, or the Emperor's greatest lie, can save it. So, that's our story in the broadest strokes. Let's return to the question we had at the beginning of the lecture. Why does Anakin fall? Well, pride is layered over everything Anakin does, and it's a drum we beat repeatedly through the movie, from the first encounter with Dooku on. He has the potential to be the greatest of the Jedi, but he must moderate his pride. The Jedi offend him by refusing to give him the rank of master, despite his position on the Council. And Anakin is prideful. Monstrously so, in fact. But, as I noted in last week's lecture, he's by no means the only one. If pride is the cardinal sin of the Jedi, then Yoda is every bit as guilty as Anakin. Mace Windu, too, perhaps more so, not to mention Qui-Gon Jinn. The fall of the Jedi Order is precipitated by pride, yes, at least as much as the machinations of Darth Sidious. But is that true of Anakin's story? To answer that question, we have to look at what the text tells us. We have to look to the key moments in Anakin's fall from grace. He kills Dooku. He stands against Mace Windu and in defense of the Emperor. He kills the Jedi younglings. He force chokes Padme. He battles Obi-Wan. But look at those underlying motivations. He doesn't kill Dooku from pride, but from a desire to do what he believes is right and the pursuit of peace and order. His loyalty to the Chancellor sets him against Master Windu, and while we must, of course, acknowledge his alienation from the Council and the reasons for that, he also has a loyalty to Palpatine that doesn't seem to be rooted in pride at all. Ultimately, when he talks to Padme about all that has happened, his decision to stand with Palpatine, it isn't a conquering glory that he invokes, but benevolent rulership, albeit a tyrannical one. He wants to make the Republic, the nascent empire, safe. He wants order and control. Desires which echo, of course, the conversation on Naboo from the middle of Attack of the Clones. And, more than anything, he wants to control Padme's fate, to prevent her death by any means necessary. And that, to return to the conversation from the beginning of the lecture, is why the death of Shmi Skywalker matters. If it is part of Darth Sidious's plan to turn Anakin evil, then Anakin is to be pitied, but can be forgiven because he was manipulated. If it's random chance, proof of the random danger and violent caprice of a universe unordered, 
then we better understand him. But the fault and the fall are his, and his alone. And at the heart of Anakin Skywalker, even in his titanic evil, is not pride, but the desperate desire from a slave boy from Tatooine to protect those he loves, to make the world safe and ordered, and to exert control no matter the price. And here is the most fantastic thing about this line of reasoning. If we're right, and if the true tragedy of Anakin wasn't the fall of a prideful fool, but rather of a desperate, frightened idealist, then we are speaking directly to the core theme of Star Wars, harmony. To impose order on the universe is inherently disharmonious. The tyrannical rule we see of the Empire, even if it were to be fully benevolent, would be wrong. We can't control, we can't perfectly protect, we can't enforce peace either through the application of the Force or a clone army. In this, the prequel trilogy's final movement, we are reconnected to the core thematic idea of Star Wars as a whole, a theme which has gone unused since, arguably, the end of The Phantom Menace and the battle for Naboo. At the same time, we're rooting our understanding of Anakin's character not in the brash hubris of the Padawan learner, but in the frightened little boy who ran back to hug his mother before leaving Tatooine in the care of Qui-Gon Jinn. This is Revenge of the Sith's greatest victory, and, honestly, a justification of the entire prequel trilogy. From the operatic intensity of the midpoint, from Sidious's reveal and Anakin standing against the Jedi, the execution of Order 66, to the grim inevitability of the conclusion, we are given a glimpse of a crucible of myth. We don't let our heroes off the hook as we did in Attack of the Clones. Here, they fail and fail again, and the concessions to the ongoing story, the retreat of Yoda ultimately to Dagobah, of Obi-Wan and Tatooine, the adoption of Leia and Luke by Senator Organa and Owen and Beru, these tiny sparks of light are so small that their fragility is inescapable. We're seeing here the potential contained within this story, the mythic clash of archetypes and their consequence, represented in its purest form, unencumbered by world-building, unencumbered by a weak romantic story, or by shaky performances or flat dialogue. This is the realization of our story, of THE story, the only story the prequel trilogy ever had to tell. Yes, Anakin Skywalker was prideful, and that pride carried consequences, but ultimately, it wasn't his power, but his desire to protect that caused his fall. Let's look, then, at the most interesting structural challenge facing this movie. Now that we've conceded, I guess, that it works on its own terms, let's look at the structural challenges facing this movie and the transition over the 28-year gap back to the beginning of A New Hope. Overall, it works rather well. Jimmy Smits manages to bring the right sadness and stoicism and gravitas to Bail Organa, and the shot we get of Alderaan at the end of the movie is a powerful one. The return of Obi-Wan to Tatooine, the decision to give Luke into the care of his uncle and aunt, is a strong choice, and certainly much stronger in the text of the movie itself than is often thought. Yoda doesn't fare quite so well, taking a strange beat at the end of the story to tell Obi-Wan about Qui-Gon's return from the netherworld of the Force, a beat which is too large a concept and too challenging to the core ideology of the series to be dealt with so trivially. 
We should also address the oft-raised criticism of R2's memory and the fact that he should recall everything in the original trilogy, even when we meet him again in A New Hope. And he may well remember, but it's impossible to know what R2's level of cognition or moral framework is. He may be the equivalent of an enthusiastic puppy, which certainly matches how he's written in some parts of the series, and his greatest and most consistent response may well be, Hey, look at that! Hey, look at this! Hey, I know that guy! Alternatively, and this is perhaps the darker thought, he may simply not care what these humans are talking about or doing to each other. Obi-Wan's cryptic remark in Attack of the Clones about droids who think is gestured toward in Revenge of the Sith, most obviously through the person of General Grievous, but perhaps more disturbingly through the clone army itself, which proves to be eminently reprogrammable. But in both cases, and of course in the broader extended case of Anakin's fall to the dark side, we're not looking at droids, but at cyborgs and clones. Less than human, perhaps, but not droid. I mentioned earlier in the lecture that Revenge of the Sith throws out some evocative and interesting ideas without really making anything of them, and that is never more true than General Grievous. A cyborg commander of the droid army, a wheezing, coughing, lightsaber-wielding foe, that is such an interesting idea, and offers such opportunities for exploring who and what we are, where the roots of Jedi power and the Force can be found, and how we judge free will and motivation and we get nothing from it, do nothing with it. All in all, this is an impressive piece of storycraft, and a successful, if not entirely successful, realization of the potential contained within the prequel trilogy. In a sense, the entire exercise lives or dies on the last half hour of this movie, and Anakin's long-awaited fall. While I would want a stronger Padme, while I would want to cut Grievous to trim some of the excess from the opening, and to confront more directly the degree to which the Jedi Order itself is responsible for the rise of the Emperor, I can't deny that the story as a whole achieves the impossible. It doesn't just work on its own terms, which is impressive enough. It enriches the original trilogy, too. There is no way, after watching this movie, to go back to A New Hope, to watch Luke stand on the rise outside the farm, looking at the sunset, to hear the rise of the Force theme, and not to be even more moved than we originally were. And that is where we'll draw this discussion of Revenge of the Sith to a close. There are many things still to discuss, many conversations still to be had, but those, I think, are better kept for our upcoming live discussion. Next Tuesday, on the 17th of November, we will live-tweet Revenge of the Sith at 9pm Eastern. The following Tuesday, the 24th of November, there will be a live video Q&A covering the prequel trilogy. That will also take place at 9pm Eastern. You are more than welcome to join us. If you have questions that you would like me to address during that wrap-up lecture, then you can get in touch right now by emailing Alistair, A-L-A-S-T-A-I-R, at storywonk.com, or by finding me on Twitter, where you can find me under either at Storywonk or at Paper Bullets. Then, sometime before the new year, I will have an extra lecture on The Force Awakens, which I think will follow with another live Q&A discussion discussing in full the new movie and the new age of Star Wars. 
And for those of you who are new to StoryWonk, let me say that this is not our only seminar series. We already have series dedicated to Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, to uh, Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, and to Diana Gabaldon's Outlander. In January, we'll begin a seminar series on the sequel to Outlander, Dragonfly in Amber, and then sometime in February or perhaps early March, I will post a poll for you guys to pick the next topic. If you would like to delve deep into one of your favorite books, your favorite movies, your favorite series, you can suggest topics by getting in touch, emailing alistair at storywonk.com. I will pick six or seven for the next shortlist and then invite you all to cast your vote. If you want to make sure that you don't miss that opportunity, head on over to storywonk.com and use the link on the front page there to subscribe to our newsletter. Guys, thank you so much for listening. I will be back on Tuesday to live tweet Revenge of the Sith and then on the 24th with our live video Q&A. I hope you'll be able to join me then. In the meantime, take care and may the force be with you.